morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. If you're watching online, glad you're joining us there and down in F3 as well. Um, glad you're here. Beautiful spring morning. Edwin Henry Lancier, he entitled his famous 1864 painting, uh, Man Proposes and God Disposes. It was, uh, it was a painting that he was depicting um, the tragic journey of Sir John Franklin and his, uh, his attempt to find a Northwest Passage. Sir John Franklin uh, and his crew of 129 left the port of, in, uh, in England, set sail, and were, they were last seen entering the waters of the high Arctic region of Canada, and then they mysteriously disappeared. They were never seen from again. Um, Sir John Franklin's plan to find a Northwest Passage ended disastrously. Man proposes, God disposes. Apparently, um, Lancier got that phrase from Thomas Akempis in his 15th century work, The Imitation of Christ. And of course, Originally and ultimately, it came from Solomon. It was Solomon in Proverbs 16:9 that said, "The mind of man plans his way, but it's the Lord who directs his step." Or Proverbs 19:21, "Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand." We plan our way, we make our proposals, but it's the Lord who directs the step. Man proposes, God disposes. Now, it's with this in truth in mind that I want us to go back and re-engage in the, our study of the book of Acts. We've taken a few weeks off. We've gone through the first nine chapters of Acts. Uh, today, I want to introduce, at least, uh, the things that are going to be happening, very significant major development that takes place in chapter 10. But this morning, let's not forget that the early church was a Jewish movement. It was a Jewish movement. The leaders of the early church were the disciples of Jesus. These were thoroughly Jewish men. The, the early followers of the Messiah Jesus, the early church people were, were Jews, um, they were steeped in Judaism out of Jerusalem, and as uh, the disciples proclaimed the good news of a risen Savior, it was to the Jewish people. Um, even as the, the gospel began to spread, as the, uh, these Jewish people began to spread, they spoke specifically to Jewish people. In fact, in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, we read that those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. Um, this is a Jewish movement. Now, let's also not forget that Acts is volume two of a two-volume work that Luke wrote. The first volume was his gospel account, the gospel of Luke. And he tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, the first account I composed, Theophilus, who was the guy he was writing to, the first account I composed 
was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's the, the Gospel of Luke, the story of the life of Christ as unfolded in the Gospel of Luke. And in the very first chapter of Luke's Gospel, of that volume one that he wrote, we uh, remember that Gabriel had come to Mary and made this pronouncement about the coming of the baby that was going to be born, that he will be great, he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This Messiah, this one coming, is going to sit on the throne of David, that would be in Jerusalem, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, Israel, forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, certainly, the, the idea of the kingdom of God, there's a, a broad, universal perspective of the kingdom of God, that he reigns supreme over all things. Right now, God is reigning supreme. He is, his kingdom knows no end. And a passage like Psalm 103, verse 19 tells us, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. There's nothing outside the reign and the authority of God right now. Now, he's given the God of this world a certain sovereign uh, oversight of this fallen world. That's why he's called the God of this world. The nations of this world are in the hands of the evil one. But there's that sense in Scripture where God's universal reign is over all. But when Gabriel announced that Jesus would sit on the throne of his father David and that he would reign over the house of Jacob forever and that this kingdom that Jesus was going to come and establish um, would have a, a particular earthly um, concept to it. We know it as the millennial kingdom or the, the messianic kingdom. The Old Testament prophets spoke of this. When Jesus in that volume one that Luke records in the Gospel of Luke, when he moved about this earth and he was teaching the, the things that Jesus taught as recorded in the Gospel of Luke, was about that particular kingdom, that earthly kingdom. Forty-one times Jesus refers to the kingdom in the Gospel of Luke. And it has to do with that, what Gabriel was talking about, that, that reign from Jerusalem, the, the seat of the, the millennial kingdom, the, the throne of David over the house of Jacob forever. Forty-one times Jesus refers to that kingdom. For instance, he said in Luke chapter 4, verse 40, 43, he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Or in chapter 8, verse 1, he began going around from city to city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. That's this earthly kingdom. That's, that's what Gabriel had talked about. That, that kingdom that would have its seat of power in Jerusalem, that would reign over the house of Jacob forever. Luke chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, he called the twelve together, gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healings. Forty-one times the kingdom is referred to in volume one of Luke's two-volume account. Even after, as Luke records, even after Jesus was crucified and he was buried, 
and he rose again on the third day, he continued to talk about this, this kingdom, this earthly kingdom that's going to be set up in Jerusalem. And there's an interesting verse in Luke chapter 24, verse 45, after Jesus had resurrected, uh, right at the end of volume 1 of Luke, where he says he opened their minds, the minds of his disciples, to understand the Scriptures. The Scriptures about himself, about his role, about his purpose for coming, about the coming kingdom. Um, and that's where volume 2 of Luke's gospel picks up. Um, Acts chapter 1 begins, and it says in verse 3, To these he presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and doing what? Well, just what he had done in his three years here on earth, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And he opened their minds to understand these scriptures. He went back to Isaiah and Zechariah and, and went back to those scriptures that talked about this coming kingdom. He probably started back in Genesis and, and was talking about all these things related to himself and how he would come and fulfill all those things and put everything back together again and would sit on the throne of his father David and reign over the house of Jacob and that his kingdom would have no end. He opened their mind to understand these things. Can you imagine that? Can you, wouldn't it have been fun to be a fly on the wall for 40 days sitting and listening to this teaching of Jesus talking about this kingdom? That he, the Messiah, would, was going to set up that kingdom on earth and put everything back together again to, to understand these things and he opened their, their minds? What an amazing time. Jesus, the king, of whom Gabriel said he will sit on the throne of his father David. And so it's no surprise that the disciples at some point then said, as it's recorded in verse 6 of chapter 1, hey, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, okay, for 40 days you've been telling us this stuff, now when is it going to happen? Is it now this is going to happen? It was a perfectly good question to ask. For two and a half, three years, Jesus had been talking about it. The Old Testament prophets had spoken about it. Um, he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. They were not asking a question in ignorance. Their minds had been opened to what Jesus had been talking about, the coming kingdom. Is it now you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel, set up your throne in Jerusalem and reign forever? Perfectly good question to ask. It was a question asked by men whose minds had been opened to understand the Scriptures. Except Jesus, though he talked a lot about the coming kingdom, one thing Jesus did not talk to them about, and it was the timing of it. They ask, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom? And Jesus says, you know, it's not for you to know the times of the epochs that the Father has set. That's verse 7. It's not for you to know what the Father has fixed in his own authority. Oh, the, the coming of the kingdom here on earth, the reign in Jerusalem, that was never in doubt. But what Jesus had not told them was when it was going to happen. Is it now? He said, it's not for you to know the times 
the seasons, the epochs that the Father has set. You be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost part of the earth. Now they heard Jerusalem. And that's what they began to do. These were thoroughly Jewish people. They were thoroughly Jewish. And so as they begin to go about Jerusalem, as we've seen in the early chapters of the book of Acts, that was their message. Like, for instance, in chapter 3. Peter says in his sermon in Acts chapter 3, therefore repent and return. Who's he talking to? To the Jews. So that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send Jesus, the Christ, your Messiah, who's been appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Come on, Jewish people, get with the program. Get your thinking in line with who Jesus really is. You crucified him. Well, that was a major mistake, but it was all according to the plan of God. Now, he's been raised from the dead. We're witnesses of that thing. We saw it. We've handled his, we've seen the nail prints in his hands. He is alive. He's ascended into heaven, and he's waiting until you repent and return and understand these things and accept him as your Messiah, and then he'll return and the times of refreshing will come. And he will sit on the throne of his father David in Jerusalem, and he will reign over the house of Israel forever. Come on, Israel. Get with the program. Repent and accept these things. Well, as we've seen throughout the book of Acts, Initially, there was a great response. 3,000 accepted that message, 5,000 plus many, probably thousands of more. There was excitement that people accepted what Peter and James and John were saying, except the religious leaders. And they were vehemently denying who Jesus was. They wanted nothing to do with him. And eventually the people begin to change their perspective. These, these Jewish followers of Jesus, these Christ followers, these, these Christians begin to realize their plan wasn't going according to what they thought it would do. They wanted to see Jesus return immediately. They wanted to see this kingdom started like now. But they begin to realize man proposes, but God disposes. A persecution set in, as we've seen. Stephen is martyred. The people are scattered. And the Jewish people of Jerusalem, who seemingly once embraced that message, begin to turn on the early Christians, these Jewish followers of the Messiah, Jesus. They ran him out of town. And I'm sure the disciples and those early Christians were scratching their heads thinking, wait, hold it. This is not what we thought was going to happen. This is not according to the plan. The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And many plans are in a man's heart. But the counsel of the Lord will stand. Man proposes, God disposes. 
Peter, James, John, those early Christians, they understood God had opened, Jesus had opened their minds to understand the reality of this coming kingdom. They just wanted it now on their time schedule. Jesus had another plan. I want you to be my witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria. I want you to go to the uttermost part of the earth and be my witnesses. That's my plan. And much to the shock and the surprise, I think, of the, these early followers of, of the Messiah Jesus, the movement away from Jerusalem began. And they're scattered because of persecution. God pushes them out, and they begin the witness in Judea and Samaria. We come to the end of chapter 9, as we saw a few weeks ago, and we read that, so the church, so the church throughout Judea and Samaria, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it continued to increase. And so what we see here is this advancement of the gospel, the triumph of the gospel. That's kind of the key theme of the book of Acts. You start in Jerusalem, and that's what they did, but um, thousands were saved until the persecution set in, and they're scattered throughout the areas of Judea, and then and then Philip is moved down to the regions of, uh, of Samaria. He's taken along to the Gaza Road and Ethiopian eunuch. And, and this, this movement begins to spread. It goes um, um, to areas that uh, they never would have thought they would have gone. But, but they're being pushed out. It's happening. God's plan is unfolding. Uh, their plan had kind of dissolved. But what happens in chapter 10 is unthinkable to the Jewish mind because it also begins to expand to the Gentiles. And as we'll see in Acts chapter 10, the word of the Lord comes to the Gentiles starting in the city of Caesarea. We'll pick that up Next week, and unpack some of the details in chapter 10, it's a, it's a marvelous story of how God um, um, messes almost with the minds of the Jewish followers, especially with Peter, as the triumph of the gospel begins to happen among the Gentiles. One thing that I think is evident that I want to convey this morning, and it's over and over again is from the book of Acts, is the truth that God's activity, God's involvement um, was in everyday occurrences of life. God was intimately, intricately involved in the movement of the gospel. God was not somewhere up there in heaven twiddling his thumbs, biting his fingernails, wondering what in the world is going down on earth, every once in a while peering over and seeing what's happening. Now, what we see from the book of Acts is that God is not some uninvolved and dispassionate observer. What we see from the book of Acts is God is, is not distant. Or as Francis Schaeffer once wrote, 
he is there and he is not silent. What we see and seen in these first nine chapters of the book of Acts is the unfolding of a plan of God. And he's deeply involved in the unfolding of that plan. Jesus told his disciples that his return and the restoration of the kingdom of Israel was determined by God's authority. It's not for you to know the times of the epochs that the Father has fixed by his own authority. The chronological unfolding of the things that we've been studying about the book of Acts has been fixed, it says, by God's authority. In Acts chapter 2, when Jesus, uh, Peter says in his sermon that Jesus was crucified, he was put on the cross, and it was done so by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, Jesus said, tarry in Jerusalem and wait for that which had been prophesied, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out. Why? Because it was all fixed by God, by his authority. The Holy Spirit is poured out because God was sovereignly moving and working out his plans. The growth of the early church, Acts chapter 2, verse 47, says the Lord was adding to their number daily. The Lord was adding to their number daily, those who were being saved. That's not a distant God who's up there, some, some unattached God, divine deity. God was working and adding those numbers. When In chapter 3, when that lame man that morning brought by friends or, either, or dragged himself up to that temple area, it was God who had ordained that Peter and John would walk past him right at that right time and catch his eye. And they would say, silver and gold have we none but what we have. Stand up and walk. That was God's doing. When Jesus sent the angel in Acts chapter 5 to deliver his disciples from prison, that's not a, a Jesus who was uninvolved and detached from the events that were unfolding. It was, it was a Jesus who was unfolding his plan at his time. When Stephen gave his defense before the Jewish leaders, and as those stones came crashing in and, and upon him and, he, and, and, and took his life, it was Jesus who stood at the right hand of the Father at the throne and spread out his loving arms and received him. It was God all the time involved. It was God who allowed that persecution to set in, to spread the church. It was God who compelled Philip to go down to Samaria and do something that no Jew would do, witness to the Samaritans. It was God who, who whisked away Philip to the Gaza Road where he encountered an Ethiopian eunuch. It was God doing these things. Jesus met Saul on the road to Damascus. It was Jesus who opened the, 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 the eyes and blinded Saul, but opened his eyes to see who he is. I'm, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. It was Jesus who set Ananias to meet with Saul. And it was Jesus who told Ananias about Saul, he's my chosen instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles. A chosen instrument to bear my name. And all throughout these early chapters of the book of Acts, we cannot miss it. God was fulfilling his plan. 
And it wasn't the plan that the early believers had. They had something else. They wanted to see this kingdom start. They wanted to see Jesus, and they were hunkering down in Jerusalem and waiting for it to happen. And, but God was working his plan. Many are the plans of a man, but it's God who directs the steps. It's the counsel of the Lord that stands. For man proposes, but God disposes. God is sovereign. And his plans are never thwarted. And our role, as we see in the book of Acts, like their role of these early believers, our role is no different. It is, to, it is to stay in line with God's plan. It's to understand his heart and to serve him and to glorify him. And we do that through the power of the Holy Spirit who enlightens us and, and gives us understanding this is the way, walk in it. This is God's will. God is sovereign. It could be a tough topic to talk about sometimes, but I think it's a beautiful topic. We talk about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about this truth that God alone possesses supreme authority and power. And he can exercise that authority and power in any way he so desires, but always in accordance with his character. God's divine authority and power being perfectly lived out. The sovereignty of God means that God is subject to none, influenced by none. He's absolutely independent of anything. He does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. He is unrivaled in unity in majesty, unlimited in power, unaffected by anything outside himself. Nothing thwarts his will. He is sovereign. And we can propose, but God always disposes. He's sovereign. Job found that out. Job 42, verse 2. I know that you can do everything, and though no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. The psalmist said, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and the seas and in all the deeps. Whatever he pleases, he does. The prophets understood it. Isaiah 48, when God told Isaiah, I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things were not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Or as the Apostle Paul would write in Ephesians 1, to whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Man proposes, God disposes. God doesn't have to worry about anything or anyone foiling his plans. He's God. And maybe that's a bit unsettling because we might ask, so why in the world is this happening in my life? Or why did this happen in my life? Why did I lose that job? Lord, I mean, well, why did I end up in Winchester, Frederick County? I mean, why? 
How did I ever end up going to that school? How did I, why was I raised in a Christian home with good parents when my friend was raised in a broken home and suffered immeasurably because of that? Why? Why are these, these things happening? Why do they happen? And somewhere, I don't understand it, don't ask me to explain it, but somewhere the scriptures will always say, somehow, somewhere, there is a sovereign God who is working out his sovereign plans in each of our lives. And we, sometimes in our arrogance, actually think we are doing it. That somehow we have accomplished these things. James would write in James chapter 4, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. I accomplished this. I made that choice, that decision. It was my good fortune and smarts that made me accomplish this or that or the other thing. I planned this way. And folks, somehow, if we peeled back the curtain, there is a sovereign God, the God of the universe, who is unfolding his plan perfectly. He never violates our free moral choices. Figure that one out. I made a choice this morning to get up and be here with you. Everything in me said, don't do it, Mark. Don't do it today. I've enjoyed five Sundays out of the pulpit. Make it six. But I made a choice to be here. Yes, because I'm a free moral agent to make those choices. But you know what? I don't, I don't understand it. But this is God's will that I'm here right now. 33 years ago, I made a choice to move my family here to Winchester. You know what? God had a plan in that. You're sitting in that chair. Oh, by the way, and those are new chairs. Don't mess them up. <laughs> but if you do, God is sovereign. We're going we're to change all sorts of things here in the next year or two. You know, it's been 21 years, so we're starting to clean up this place. I'll still be here, I hope, but you know, hopefully they'll start cleaning this up a little bit up here too. But, um, but God is sovereign over these things. You're here. It's a divine appointment. Let's not be arrogant to think we made this choice. We're, we're doing these things. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But God is working out his plan for my life. And my, my days are ordered by the Lord, as are yours. The steps of a man are ordered by the Lord. Is that unsettling to you? Is that upsetting? Well, it would be if God, if this sovereign God was a mean, vindictive, bad dude up there in heaven. 
but he's not. He's a sovereign God who's in charge of every detail of our life, but he's a God of love and compassion and mercy. He's a God who is, according to Paul in Ephesians 2, he's rich in mercy and grace because of the love with which he loved us. 1 John 4 tells us, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son in the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us. He sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And what John is saying and what we have celebrated this morning in the communion service is the reminder that God is love. If you have any doubts about that, we, we go to the cross and we see what he's done for us. That's why we partake of the Lord's table. It's a reminder. We need to be reminded that there's a sovereign God who's fulfilling his plans. Look at the book of Acts as it's unfolded. But he's a God who loves us with an everlasting love. And he sent his son to die and pay the penalty for our sins. That's love. No greater love than this. So this loving God who is merciful and gracious is deeply, intimately involved in the affairs of our life, fulfilling his purposes, unfolding the counsel of his will. And while we may make our plans, God is directing the steps. And he's always loving and he's always kind and he's always gracious. That's what the cross and the empty tomb speaks to us. So is it unsettling to think that uh, somehow this, am I some robot? Am I some marionette puppet uh, on the strings? No, we are, we are free moral agents, but he is sovereign. And, and yes, he's directing every aspect of our life. And we can trust him because he's a God who loves us. As Christians today, we may groan and wonder and struggle about what in the world is unfolding. How, God, are you working in my life, and why are these things happening now? But when it's all said and done, there's wonderful good news that God is fulfilling his purposes for his glory and our good. And as we walk humbly before him and love him and engage with him, He'll even make all those bad things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Because he is not up in heaven, wringing his hands, weak and wondering what is going to happen next. Man, if the book of Acts teaches us anything, that is crucial. And so, God calls us to get in line with him. It's a relationship with the eternal God who is unfolding his good plans. We are his workmanship, Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus unto good works that we should walk in them. Our goal in life needs to be aligning our thinking with him. That may involve a certain amount of repentance, changing our thinking about, about how, who's in charge of things. God's in charge of things. And so I think it's wise for us to simply say, all right, Lord, I got it. I don't understand it, but I get it. You're God, I'm not. Now help me to understand what you're doing in my life. Help me to understand why these things are happening right now today. 
these painful things, these things I would just as soon not write in the script of my life, but, but they're there. And, and somehow, yeah, it was my bad choices that got me there, but somehow, God, you're sovereign in all that, and you're working all those things. And, and yeah, it was, it was other people's sin that happened against me that caused me to struggle here, but, but somehow, God, you're sovereign in all that, and you're weaving a plan of my life. Now, help me understand, Father, what my role is in that. And you know, ultimately, it's no different than the early church. I just want you to be my witness. I, I just want you to proclaim my glory to the world. You, you know that neighbor that you're, you're, you're living next to? I, I just want you to kind of shine my glory out to them. You know that coworker at work? You know, you're here to just, just ooze out the love of Jesus to them. You know that, that family that might still be in your home or that has grown in a way and having their family? You know those people... I just want you to, to reflect my, my love to them. Be my witnesses. And I'll work through you and I'll work in you to do and to will for my good glory, my good pleasure. God, what are you doing in my life? Help me to see it. And give me the power through your Holy Spirit to cooperate with you to accomplish what you're doing. Folks, there's nothing more exciting. That's the Christian life. <laughs> that, that's, you're, you're drawing a breath right now, folks. You know what that means? You're alive. <laughs> and it means that God is still working out his plan in your life. And, and, we, and he's doing it. He's, he's, he's there and he's not silent. Thank you, Francis Schaeffer. He's involved. He's, he's working. Let's get in line with what he's doing. Lord, give me an understanding of what you're doing in my life today. When that car cuts me off, you know, at that pass or whatever, Lord, help me see you in that. When that little child of mine gets sick and I have to miss this appointment or whatever, help me to see you in this. Lord, what are you doing in my life? Because you're the sovereign king and lord of the universe. And you've got my life right here, right in your powerful hand. And you're accomplishing your purposes because you're God. I'm not. I want to be in line with yours. That's what the book of Acts is teaching us. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for your kindness and grace. Thank you that you're a God who has poured out your everlasting, unfathomable love to us as we've witnessed this morning in the Lord's table. But I'm so grateful that you are a sovereign God on unfolding the purposes, the plans that you have in, in the micro issues of my life, in the macro issues of this world, and nothing will thwart your plan to bring things to its consummated end as you have designed it. Father, to the degree that I, not arrogantly, but humbly walk before you to seek your direction and to seek your heart and your face and, and just simply say, here I am, Lord. Accomplish your purposes in my life. To, to the degree that I, uh, I just submit and yield myself to you, man, that's when life begins. <laughs> And for any of us, we enter into such joy and the fullness of life to know that the eternal creator 
is accomplishing your purposes. And little oh me, my oh my God, may we be moved to serve you like never before and love you like never before. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.